Welcome to Revolutionary Lumpen Radio, the podcast for the Lumpen Proletariat, from the left and from the left to the Lumpen Proletariat. In this episode, you really take a deep dive into the diaspora of Britain. With the help of a writer named Zola, who identifies as ex-Muslim, together we all really expose the racism and segregation and diaspora that goes on in our society and encompasses the globe in order to facilitate imperialism. This is the first episode where I'm going to actually give a verbal disclaimer. Please do not proceed to listen to if you're easily upset. These subjects may be emotionally overwhelming for you. Cool stuff. Are you ready to start? Okay. Welcome to Revolutionary Lumpen Radio. Zola, we're really happy to have you here with us talk about topics that don't get talked about enough, in my opinion. Because we're both from Britain, it's really great that we can talk about like Britain in general. So, before we go into the subject matter, it's always good to share with listeners just who our guests are in order to paint a better picture of the background, the political development, any movements that you may be involved in which will really help show some of your personality so that we can take that into consideration for the rest of the podcast, which will be focused on you and the topics at hand. So if you could just do that for us, that would be great. All right. Thanks for having me on the show. My name is Zola. I'm an ex-Muslim and I've had um, migrant parents who've left the UK thanks to feeling isolation um, I used to be actually in a Muslim gang. I used to like do the hardcore stuff when it comes to Islam, but not anymore, obviously. I'm now a Pan-African. I believe in radical feminism and I would describe myself as a socialist. Awesome. Thank you for that introduction. Seemed like a really interesting person from being ex-Muslim. I'm sure that was extremely like difficult to deal with, especially in a community which I imagine is with other Muslims, that can be really alienating and traumatic for you, as well as being in a hardcore gang. Uh, <laughs> my G, we love our proletarians on this show, and it's just it's awesome that you got that class consciousness and you was able to take those lessons that you learned from that lifestyle and hopefully use it to make the world a better place and so that we can all march towards a better future together, away from having to you know, in one way or another, be exploited, if not by a capitalist, then a lumpen capitalist, even worse. So let's talk about a series of topics here. Thankfully, you're willing to bring out the horrors of modern day Britain, essentially. To make this not a joke, I think we're here to talk about a phenomenon that can be described as diaspora, which is also described as a movement, migration or scattering of people away from established or ancestral homeland. Like, what this is, is going to be discussed over a number of questions with you, Zola. So thank you for being here. Going to be discussed over a number of questions, conversation, and bringing to light why this is the most serious consequence on people's lives, in that it leaves millions of people just in the UK detached from a culture that surrounds them in their own homes or the segregated communities that they're forced into in Britain. This leads to alienation from a UK culture as a whole, British culture, as well as being detached from another homeland, 
either from birth or the family's birth and the former cultural ties. This is caused by racism. It is an essential component to the class structure society that aims to prevent the solidarity of the people and maintain a culture of exploitation, capitalism and imperialism which lays a path out for the ruling classes to do as they please while those masses are always prevented from really being non-prejudiced and actually separated from one another in, in our decrepit neighbourhoods with poor British social housing which absolutely has to be mentioned unable for a new cultural understanding and solidarity with each other a new humanity that will put an end to this miserable liberal capitalist system and give us a future that we can all be our best selves in anywhere we want in the world and with the means to do so because of our hard labor and our profits haven't been taken away from us from millionaire politicians and businessmen so I'll end this rant now because <laughs> I know that we've got a lot to talk about here. So let's move on now to, you know, this segregation that I mentioned. Moving on to the questions now. And with all that said, what can you tell us about migrant communities, social segregation, and why the people there lean to the right? Right. So what you said about segregation already is actually quite true. It's really sad how that's the reality. But I think I'll split this question. So firstly, migrant communities have intergenerational differences. So the first generation, they usually come from uh, former colonies. Uh, they can't enter the country because of the whole very high prerequisites to enter the borders. And it's, it's kind of weird how it's not really perceived that way. But most of the time, no one outside of Europe is allowed entry to the UK without having a high-skilled job so that they even be allowed a visa, allowed to even set foot outside of the borders, um, border control. So the first generation, they're usually very highly skilled and they tolerate all kinds of things that they get towards them because especially when they can't go back. I mean, those that can go back after, I don't know, they've made money from working or they fulfilled whatever goal they do go back because... Uh, it, it's not very fulfilling, you know, just feeling isolated or whatever. But if they do end up staying and then there's an, a second generation, that's where things are different because they're British, but no one sees that. And they can't go anywhere else. Like They, they took school there. And that's why you see that the image that, yeah, maybe them immigrants, they're bad. They're doing this, they're doing that. But they can't even come to the country without without having an, a high-skilled um, job. And on a global scale, if we look at it, um, this is a loss to the home country they come from because, um, I don't know, there's this phenomenon called the brain drain where the home country spends its resources on educating the youth and then they can't find a life once they finish university and once they've worked so hard in their home country, they just can't really find a good life promise to them they'll just end up working for the exact same wages they would have worked if they've never went that's why they all just take up university take up higher education just so that they could get you know the, the freedom that is always advertised in um the other countries which is again not true and then they go there and um and their home country, it loses resources. Basically, they've just lost labor, especially in a capitalist world. We just see everything as uh, the worth of a, of a person is how much money they can bring to the economy. And they've, they've basically lost that. 
so then the country just stays poor and and especially in these countries as well the best high paying jobs because I've, I've traveled and i've seen these countries the best high paying jobs are from outsourced companies from america from britain from europe they just outsource um extremely boring and repetitive labor and that is the highest paying job that they can get even though it's it's still less than what these countries would pay employees for doing the exact same thing um so yeah they are promised a good life and a good pay in britain then they become naturalized but they hold their own values um it's their it's their kids the next generation that holds british values and that's where you see uh, a lot of more clashes for example uh but i'll get onto this later on but with the sense of uh violence and extremism this doesn't happen from the first generation it's usually the second and the third but not the fourth um yeah that's where the most tension is because you grow up seeing uh your own parents just facing mistreatment and and you know just bearing it with a smile and you don't you don't think you're different in that way um yeah so that is about the migrant communities yeah i hear what you're saying i mean there's also that multi-generational thing as well right so like because a lot of what you know sort of racist attacks people see you know especially like migrants and everything is they'll say like you know go back home but by the time you're dealing with like second onward generations like this is home to them right so it doesn't even make sense at that point because they can't leave and they're also not really wanted within those communities unfortunately so it's just kind of a weird sort of limbo situation wow well, well said there ryan i've got a couple of points there unless you want to respond to, to ryan first or Okay, yeah, there is a few things there you mentioned, of course, intergenerational communities. That that was really interesting perspective there. I I had never thought of that before. Um, and Ryan brought out another point there, but just to take that a step further and, and analyze it, um, you know, as I said, Liverpool's got actually quite a lot of I mean I hate to use these words like minorities like it's stupid to say it's like it's automatically like offensive I think when we're talking about solidarity here but just in terms of uh, identifying this you know this this bullshit phenomenon we, we should see each other as like fellow human beings I'm just gonna use that so you know, I'm sorry in advance for that, but um, firstly, the first generation people who come over here and they truly expect like a better life, um, that's that's really interesting just because Britain really has to pull some strings here to to at the same time be, you know, bombing and, and doing sanctions and basically bullying through, you know, a global trading system with these other countries that they still think that this country is actually a good place to go to in the first place as if as if the actual social foundations and fabric of that society isn't inherently rotten. But, again, when you want to leave and go to what's perceived as better developed countries because of, you know, more materials and, you know, even the academia that you can achieve in Britain and then go to these, like, was it outsourced jobs where you get paid more in the future of course you can see why that's bloody tempting and and something you can aspire to do and you know you you have to love the the elders of the first generation people who go over there 
just to continue talking about them. I've worked with, uh, you know, quite a few of these people. Um, you know, you, you literally go to a corner store and you see, again, these these people who have come from, you know, the, these other countries. And they're extremely hard-working people, like you said, not not just, like, studying and to get qualifications that they need to, to enter Britain, and which are, you know, high-level qualifications. I mean, I don't know anybody personally with those qualifications. So, such like a like an, a high developed person. I just know like London and workers, you know, working flipping, you know, bottom, like bottom end jobs. So, uh, you know, we're talking about extremely intelligent and hard working people. So when you see the second generation people, like really see this this inherent like racism, you know, and, and even like. All over the telly, all over the internet, just all over like Western civilization, uh, you you can see this resent- resentment coming out, and I, I don't know how far I, I could agree that they see themselves as part of this society or culture because, like, or or at least where I'm standing, these people are so alienated from their their own like an- ancestral land, in uh, which the elders return to with the hard-earned money to get back from where they come from. These second generations, they've also got a different accent for the most part than the masses of the white populations. And this is because of a lack of integration and just simply by the means of how they talk. And again, they're, they're trying to juggle with two different languages. We Again, this is like, this is intelligence. I mean, I don't really know anybody apart from like Huzol and, and maybe a few other people who like who can speak different languages. You know what I mean? You, you see me struggle with like basically English and uh, as well as like, you know, you know, most other people who grew up in my school, again, they're not really that developed ling- linguistically, but they have got the accent, which is basically a form of, like, <laughs> slang, and it's basically like text talk all the time, like how you text on your phone, but this is how they talk, like, naturally, this is the, the vocabulary, you know, so we really can't, we really have to do justice for these people, um, who we're going to be talking about and defending and bringing light to the diaspora too because they're really great human beings, like they're very intelligent, they're very smart, they're extremely hardworking and you've done well to, to bring that out and hopefully I've contributed to that. That was spot on, what you said about, um, especially about the learning the languages and, and everything, but I was going to go on in my next point and explain something about um social segregation so um it's actually more of a reaction than it is a, an action especially when it comes from the community itself so what first starts is um the, you know the lack of welcoming uh community or environment and then you see people refusing to learn their parents languages or like it all depends on the environment i mean i personally refused to learn my parents' language. My brother didn't, but because of what I've experienced, I'm a bit older than him, so I've gone through 9-11 where no one was allowed to go out. Like, we used to go out in groups. Uh, my parents used to go out in groups to pick us up from school and take us back because it was extremely dangerous. And I was a kid at the time. I didn't understand, like, my parents didn't teach me even what Islam was at the time, but... Um, given what I had experienced, I that was the first time I realised that I looked different than other people. And 
um, just being singled out like that, it's something that you really want to avoid, especially in this culture. I think this culture likes not just it's not it's not British culture, it's just the world's culture. They love stories. They love this idea that there is this nation that looks like this. And if you, you know, the whole idea is you have to be put in this one box instead of, you know, the I think I think it's a distraction from the class struggle, to be honest. That's my opinion on it, because it's just a bunch of abstract things um, like what language do your parents speak that kind of determines what how you're going to be treated. For example, some people, um, some immigrants for, from Syria or something, they look, I think, I think they look the same as white people. And um, just because they would speak another language or, or speak in a different way, then, then that would determine how they get treated. I think you remember the viral videos of that. So um, the social segregation on the level of, I think it's just the right wing breeds more right wing, right? Because that's how the, the whole like Muslim community became a, a word because a lot of the, for example, like I said, the first generation uh, migrants that come, they come with their own ideas of their own national of, of their own nation of their own national borders of what it means to be whatever country they're from so they don't consider being muslim as a common point that would bring them together in the first place they see race they see themselves as different races or from completely different cultures and yet because of this um, because of racism or pressure they feel like us all Muslims, we have to ignore our differences and kind of get together, right? Because the thing is, migrants are not like, they're not perfect. They're, they've got their own racism inside their communities. But just the idea to make this whole thing of like, there is an us and there's a them, it means that, it basically means your backs are to the wall because none of this us is even about your own benefit. I think this also relates to, again, the whole... Um, forgetting the class conscious thi consciousness, so you're um, like you're a Muslim now. You have to ignore whatever's beneficial for you, just whatever's beneficial for the Muslim community, whatever that is. Um, but in reality, in in Muslim majority countries, it doesn't have a meaning. Just the same way as there's no such like being a Christian doesn't bear any meaning in a Christian majority country. Um, because that's not what they care about. But in, especially in, in Britain, I'm not sure in France, but especially in Britain, people would say things like, you're, if you denounce uh, your faith, you're no longer whatever country you're from, you're British. Um, but that's seen in a bad way. Like, aren't we all British anyways? Uh, especially, It's especially funny when these same Muslims would be like, yeah, I'm British, but then you for example lose your um you you lose your faith and then you're no longer Somali or you're no longer Pakistani but why um i think it's a, it's a way of like putting your backs to the wall um that and we have to leave and go to a place that britain made it hard to tolerate anyways this is especially true because majority of the migrant communities do come from former british colonies and I don't think colonialism is completely over yet. You know, even in Egypt, uh, when when the British left, they put a puppet king, and and the military would 
they would salute the crown even after the quote-unquote independence. So just because they're independent by name. I mean, for British colonies, it's kind of better than um, French colonies. The entire economy is printed by the French uh, in France. It's actually printed in French territory, and then it's sent there. It's, it's even worse for French colonies. But um, I, I keep saying the French a lot because... Uh, the impact of French on the on the global economy is huge. I don't think that we'll be able to have proper like we would be able to erase capitalism if we if we keep having this form of neo-colonialism in place. No, def yeah, no, definitely not, right? You'll definitely have to get rid of all of them at the same time. And there's um I definitely would say that colonialism's not over at all. Like it's just simply taken on a different form. I mean, there's still all sorts of, you know, countries involved in other countries' disputes permanently, right? There's basically the entire Middle East. You've got, like, and even if you just look at Syria itself, right, you have, like, the U.S. and those kind of Western powers, and then you have Russia, and then, like, the proxy wars in Syria and everything, right? So there's... It's, it's like a constant... The way I, I was told, or I read something on this, that these people in charge just see the entire world like a, like a chess... Uh, chessboard and the whole point is just to own and dominate as much land control resources and power as possible so each of these nations are essentially expansionist in their goals and they're just trying to control as much uh, as possible and you know this is why you always see America involved in all kinds of wars overseas um, and capitalism to be honest requires it right um that's what lenin was talking about when he said you know imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism right capitalism is it either grows or it dies so it's always looking for either new markets to exploit or more efficient exploitation of currently existing markets and we can see this in you know what's happened in the last couple of years if you look at a country like bolivia they recently had uh, a military coup in that country backed by the united states and then a couple days later the was it lithium i believe the um rare mineral that the bolivian government refused a private deal with the united states and then suddenly a couple days later you know lithium prices go up um, and the reason that these rare minerals are required is because they're used in, you know, technology, phones, those kinds of things. And rare earth minerals are becoming in um, higher, higher supply as, um, you know, capitalism keeps churning out, you know, more and more uh, technology, essentially. Mm, so they're not just coming after culture and identity and history, which, of course, they, they love to take away our history from us because we, we built history. We're talking about... You know, Perfect. core materials and, and and capital, which would which again we go into imperials one off racism and just to go back to to what you said there, Zolan, about you see racism even within their own communities, and with that being said, you also think that this is a distraction from class struggle and a distraction from class consciousness. Yes, it absolutely is. You've just got to reiterate what Fred Hampton said. He's he's saying. That there's a class over here, there's a class over here, this is, you know, why do, why doesn't this class ever do anything to help this other poor class when they're extremely wealthy? Well, it's because 
this is the exploiter, this is the exploited, this is the oppressor, this is the oppressed. And what they love to do is they like to say, you know, you're British, you need to hate Muslim, or you're Muslim, you need to hate white people, or you're Somali, you need to hate whoever. Um, this is because, you know, if these people ever stopped hating each other and stopped arguing with each other and stopped, you know, wanting to stay within their own communities because of this inherent racism and the the social pressures from their own communities, be it white, be it black, be it one religion, be it another, you know, the alienation and the oppression and bullying that they've victimised from their in-group, from these other out-groups, is what prevents us all from coming together and working together because if that ever happened then we'd start thinking you know what maybe these kings maybe these queens in france maybe these prime ministers maybe they're the bad guys maybe they're the ones we need to turn to and this is the very basis of why class consciousness is important this is the core principle of what solidarity means it means to come together and this is why we talk about these things why it's absolutely critical that we bring this class consciousness to people's attention so thank you fred hampton and wrestling power for the uh, analysis that i was able to use there and hopefully made it easier for others for some other people to understand just to go into another point again before we moved on which i absolutely can't leave hanging in the air you mentioned that you went through nine eleven. That was that was a really interesting, upsetting story to hear, especially when to actually hear you vocalise that that's when you saw yourself as being different in society. That's genuinely heartbreaking, and and again we talk about how many millions of people across the world feel this. It's even if one person felt it. It would be wrong and something that we should all address as a society and humanity to oh because it's it, it it's it's um it's it's i can't literally i'm trying to empathize with it but i can't it just i just feel hurt whenever i try and my mind reels at it um so it's something that we all have to deeply consider and and um you know, as to the causes of nine eleven, who knows? I wasn't on the flight. I wasn't the one who might have orchestrated the attacks. But one one thing that we do know is the consequences to that was uh, a flourishing of racism and and a need or or a, or a want within the white population of the planet in the West to attack other people. And then again, we go into resources. Ryan mentioned lithium. Well, because of those 9-11 attacks and because of this horrendous attack on other people of other cultures with countries, with resources, just as oil, which they made a goddamn, you know, oil probably cost more than lithium and they, they made a lot more of it because of these 9-11 attacks. So you can call me a conspiracy theorist or what, but that's what happened. So, I mean, I don't think that's a conspiracy theory, honestly, like, <coughs> because... <laughs> They invaded Iraq afterwards, but Iraq actually had nothing to do with 9-11, yeah. right? So it's clearly, I mean, you can clearly see that they had the agenda to go into Iraq and other such countries in the first place. And again, that's also for um, money, power, capital, like geopolitical influence, right? They wanted to be in the region. They want the oil. They want control. And um, they saw an opportunity to do it, you know, go in under the guise of 9-11. So, um 
you know, they can do that. And and capitalism functions on two different fronts, right? So you have like the material, obviously, which is ultimately what it's all about, you know, the private control of the means of production so that they can make a group of people rich. But there's an ideological component that exists within society that capitalism perpetuates um, that exists on many fronts. So like racism is just one aspect of that for sure, but it it exists in any way that it can like divide people and it will do that along any lines. Um, and racism is, you know, like one of the most obvious and uh, unfortunate ones. Um, but there are definitely others. Yeah. <laughs> nice one for your support there. So I don't feel like I'm one of them crazy conspiracy theorists with a tin hat on my head. Again, we, we tie into class consciousness, we tie into... Uh, capitalism and the real world effects that they use to exploit that i just want to mention that we can respect other people who practice different religions who have different cultural backgrounds while working on international solidarity these two things are achievable at the same time yeah so when we talk about french colonies you know economic ways that was interesting about the exportation of printed money with i'm guessing the french king's face on it to you know, I'm, I, I don't know which country specifically you, you were talking about, but I don't know whether you've ever seen the Battle of Algiers. I do think you should definitely watch that. Every single one of the listeners should go and watch the Battle of Algiers. There was a revolution that took part in Algeria. They managed to push out French colonialism from the country. And, you know, you see basically what looks like a documentary. You see an amazing depiction of what happened, how this revolution took place and how the people of Algeria were actually managed to push out a French colonial power from the country. And that's that's definitely something we, we, we should take a look at. I actually know that the Black Panther Party and I know that there's comrades all around the world in different organisations who make a an absolute necessity to watch this film because it really shows us how to work underground. There is also a number of other types of um, uprisings like that that have taken place throughout history, right? You had like the um, Haitian Revolution, right? When they rose up against the slave masters. Um, I mean, when you're talking about colonial powers, like Britain's kind of been one of the worst ones. I mean, the Commonwealth, we're, we're, we're everywhere, right? Everyone acknowledges the Queen all the way from Canada, which is part of the Commonwealth, all the way down to like New Zealand and Australia. So there really is like no corner of the world that's basically been untouched by like, you know, the, the, the old British colonial power and the old British Empire, which, you know, basically owned everything at one point or another. The divine right of kings, where these same kings and queens all around the world in imperialist countries are basically all friends. I mean, they all used to be family, you know, against those peasants, and that's essentially what it was. They used to build castles back in the day, and then they'd have castles of grandeur all around the countries so that they could never be killed and overthrown and then when they were away from one castle they'd have other loyal subjects and other lords 
and barons who basically house sat in these castles for them so that when they were away from those castles they wouldn't be taken over by peasants so they gave those lords lands and then that created you know, a, a system where the king could go wherever he wanted and then return to his castles in absolute safety and then his powers and, you know, the keep within those castles were were safe and secure from the peasants. And then what you have today is you replace castles with, you know, the International Monetary Fund or the IMF working with the World Bank in the United States and other bourgeois capitalists around the world turning food-growing land into factories for export production. Funded largely by Japan, it is the kind of so-called reform demanded by the IMF. The new factories will produce new revenue and profits for foreigners. They will also produce new debt for the Philippines. Calabarzon typifies the kind of development strategy which only brings ruin to the third world because such a strategy is premised, for example, on massive development, so-called development, massive exploitation of the environment, uh, change in people's way of life, uh, taking land from the uh, people and the peasants to be able to convert this into so-called industrial zones with the problems of pollution and everything. And usually, this development strategy is fueled by debt fueled by foreign investment. Vast amounts of wealth that secure their positions and basically pay for our labour or bodyguards or even private armies to protect their investments. Politics in Chagam was basically like having castles and, and lords following you about to protect you. It's, it's really no different because that's what the state is when it comes into its evolution from these feudal lords into capitalists. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, originally, right, you had, like, the feudal the feudal powers. And what people don't understand about capital is, like, the social aspect of it. So, like, even though they are a class, they all know each other, right? There is a very social aspect to capital among that class. So they all know each other. They all go to the cocktail parties and, and everything. They all actually, you know, get along really well, which is kind of an aspect that some people miss sometimes. Most definitely. I've got one final note, and this is to respond to what you said, Ryan, about... They see the world like a chessboard, like a game, and the world is a game. Well, this is what they do at the cocktail parties that you mentioned, where they sit on those dead long tables where everybody gathers around and you've got one head at the, the table and then they've literally got like a banquet in front of them and then they've got like loads of cooks coming around, dropping off all all incredible scans for them, all amazing food, and then they're constantly being served to, literally served to, as if it's half of the word from servant. This is how they live, like on the reg. And then they discuss how how they play the world as a game. And then we ever played the, the game Civilization. This is how they do it. You, you just develop units and then you build universities in your civilization and you contract science within the points. And yeah. with that science, you can buy other technologies. There's other civilizations and a map with you within the game. And all the while, while your population grows, you have to constantly go out and build units within the map to like build an, an improvement on a resource. Basically, if you if you got iron, you want to get an iron mine. And then if you've done the iron mine, it enables you to unlock, you know, soldiers and legions with swords and then 
it goes up and then you can actually build, you know, navy ships, you can build aircraft carriers, jets, and then you're playing on a map where that does the civilizations and you're basically playing this strategy game that tells you how the world works. And again, all the while, you've got to constantly go out and seek these amenities to keep your population happy so that they don't ever revolt. And if that happens, then you've got to kill the units that spawn, otherwise they're going to destroy all your resources. It's basically showing what riots are if your population ever gets enough dissent. And you can play the same game as them. The only difference is they play for real life, you play it on a video game. If we want to move on, Zola... Yeah, I actually also wanted to respond to the exact same point that Ryan said. Um, yeah. Yeah, I just want to add on to it the fact that capitalism is meant, like, it's all about stories. So it also includes that the, the story has to come to a, an end because uh, you can't have capitalism without one side being exploited. So there has to be, like, a sudden recession or something. For example, to put it into context, in 2019, I read one of the magazines that said that predicted an economic recession in this year. Growth has to happen to a limit and then it has to break itself down so that it can repeat the cycle. It's not something, it's not meant to uh, last forever. It's not meant to, you know, actually give benefits or anything. Yeah, definitely. That's why we get boom-bust cycles, right? Like the whole system is built on profit maximization for a short period of time and then the whole thing collapses and then it gets bailed out and then they get to do whatever they want again. So for example there's this uh, really popular statement like go back to Africa or go back to wherever you're from. It's not just said by for example white nationalists, it's also said by quote-unquote black supremacists in for example America or wherever. It, it doesn't make sense because the word like the word white or the word black doesn't actually have any meaning. There's no country called white country or there's no country called black country. But this statement is very interesting because they're both this. It's said by two opposite sides that are both on the right. Again, it ties down to the stories that the chess pieces that you were saying, Ryan. Um, for example, Islamic fundamentalists, which we'll get to later, they're also right wing, and they don't define themselves on the left right scales. And because, you know, they are uh, Muslims in the West, they do enjoy the immunity of uh, libertarianism or liberalism. I actually can't tell the difference between them uh, because <laughs> because of how it, it doesn't have anything to do with actual liberal values. It just has to do with, we'll just do this to spite the conservatives without actually thinking, is this right for, for humanity? You know, at the end of the day, they're still capitalists. They still have the same thing. So liberalism and multiculturalism, these both failed, right? So, um, for example, uh, there's another statement that also is, is a bit annoying, that you should see people as equal uh, despite their color, as if their color is an issue, right? Even though their interests like are literally the same as their workmate, their neighbor, but it's an agenda of separating the working class with like abstract or bogus terms as the Muslims or the immigrants, even though there is no con collective consensus. And if there was, it would not be different from any Britain. Like it's literally the exact same consensus of you want to have a good life, you want to, you know, have a family, whatever it is that has value to you. It's, there's no collective consensus because we don't have class conscious. 
Yeah, that's something that I usually bring up when I'm like talking to right wingers or something, right? They always talk about like we have to save Western democracy, and it's always like Western civilization, and it's like what is that? Like when you say that, what what are you even talking about? What does that mean? Like what is Western civilization? Like McDonald's? Like I don't even understand what the point is that they're trying to make here. Like this thing in your mind that you're trying to preserve. I don't even think really exists. I mean, what is it? Just like a, cor- a a collection of companies on some dirt. Like it's not. I don't. I don't know. Maybe they have some kind of weird. And again, it must come back to that story idea, right? The idea that capitalism or has told them or vice versa about you know the story of how we got here and we're great and we're the white people, so we have to be awesome, so everything we do is great, so we have to save it, whatever it is, even though it doesn't really exist, we've got to save it anyway, and everything else is bad, basically. <laughs> yeah, uh, very, very funny critique there. Uh, yeah, I've got a couple of points to bring out of that. So, it was interesting that you said so about capitalism failing. You mentioned and predicted the, the recessions are always predictable, and and I completely agree that capitalism has absolutely failed more times than communism ever has. But at the same time, you could also take up an, another paradigm to say that capitalism hasn't failed. It has to the economists. It has to those liberals who, again, as you mentioned, subscribe to this idea of something that doesn't exist, whether you call that Western civilization or whether you call that liberal ideology or libertarianism or neo-colonialism. This is all, again, a smokescreen to keep not just the minorities, the the poorest people in society arguing with each other. This also keeps the intellectuals arguing with each other, the people who go to universities and study this economic system and who do have right-wing beliefs and those who do argue over the shit that you see on the news and the politics because these are people, again, who are trained by this liberal society who have followed a higher education and while they might not argue over where money goes because they're not really that poor off and they don't really suffer racism themselves they're they're constantly arguing with each other to say no capitalism should work this way no capitalism would be better off for the next few years if we take it in this direction capitalism failed us here so we should go here these are all Again, falling for the same smokescreen. It's not about race, it's not about poverty, it's about a system of capitalism that, again, it exists, but it doesn't actually exist. If you actually look at the facts and what capitalism is, capitalism is long gone, it's past. And we're not talking just about imperialism, when we talk about the United States capitalism, it's not a market of free trade, it's not a place where you can enter and then become a, a Jeff Bezos. I personally believe that Jeff Bezos is only a billionaire where he is today because his father was ex-Cuban. And it's great for those people in Miami to say Cuba's a bad fucking place. Look at how evil Fidel Castro is because, you know, Jeff Bezos' dad came from Cuba and now he's a billionaire. I also think that there's some... I mean, if you can believe that 9-11 was a conspiracy, you can also believe that these ex-Cuban immigrants who fled Castro's rule, who end up 
actually extremely wealthy in Miami and they get given these good jobs, then you also start to think that there's some kind of conspiracy for them to do that because it benefits capitalism and to think that it's this free market that you can enter. But it's not. Again, it's a monopoly. Uh, if you enter the market, your product becomes so big. What happens to it? You just get bought by a monopoly of, of a company who owns several companies and those several companies own 30 other country companies and those 30 other companies own another 40 companies. I mean, this is what monopoly, monopoly is. And again, there's only the few ruling class people at the top who even own all of these companies. It's, it's a facade that, that capitalism exists, that it's a free market. It's, it's just another bullshit way of an ideology being fed to you so you can all argue amongst each other as peasants or as middle class people to actually take away from the fact that it's all run by a, a few minority of people called the ruling class bourgeoisie bastards you know so I mean I mean yeah there's, there's a couple of things to separate out here right like capitalism exists in that capitalism is you know the private ownership of the means of production right so that exists sure and when it comes to like wealthy people that came over from Cuba um that's why they left, right? Because they were the slave owners, essentially. Like, before Castro's Cuba, when it was still um, being run by Batista, right? It was like a slave colony, essentially. There were, like, slave plantations. So all of those people that left uh, and fled to go to Miami were basically already wealthy anyway because they were the slave owners. So those were the, the rich people. And it's definitely true that there's no such thing as a free market, right? It can't exist. It never has existed. It never will exist. Uh, a free market is complete nonsense, right? Like, so they always give the idea of like, oh, it's free, a free market, free of what? Free of what, right? Like uh, a market can't exist without government intervention or regulation because it's the government that makes markets exist anyway. So um, a free market yeah. literally can't exist. Like it's an impossibility. And yes, uh, Bezos yeah. definitely only got rich because um, I think it was it his parents or something gave him like a shit ton of money and everything. And it's true of all of them, right? Uh, Bill Gates, same thing. Um, Taylor Swift, same thing. Like <laughs> Elon Musk, his dad owned an emerald mine in South Africa. Like, uh, yeah, as in like the actual apartheid South Africa. He owned diamond mines. And um Jeez. So you can see why he looks the other way with lithium. <laughs> Sorry, but go on. Elon Musk literally tells a story of like when I came over here I had nothing but a handful of gems. It's like <laughs> dude, like what are you talking about? It's part of the ruling class. It doesn't matter what country yeah. they're from because they all agree with each other. That's why you said colonialism never ended. The ruling class Definitely. just thinks the exact they have the exact same thing they're in agreement with each other they just put us against each other mm -hmm. oh god <laughs> yeah definitely but don't laugh i'm gonna cry to this it's, it's really that absurd you know what i'm saying i mean it is this but it also so... goes back to the storytelling point right like how does how does capitalism ideologically perpetuate itself it tells the story of anyone can be rich you can do it too work hard meanwhile all the people at the top were given money by their parents. They inherited money. Everyone that they know grew up rich and wealthy and with connections and they worked at, you know, this guy's firm and I got that job because he's my dad's friend and that's how that whole thing works. And that's the ideological storytelling of capitalism and that's how it perpetuates itself. It tells the story of anyone can do it, you can do it too, work hard, and that also puts the problem on you. It puts the onus on you. 
right? If you're not rich, if you're not doing well, that's now your fault because anyone can do it if they work hard. So if you're not doing it, it must be a fault of you instead of the system and the structures that exist. We really can't understate the power of storytelling here because storytelling existed long before capitalism, long before the divine rights of kings it existed, when when language existed and we started to communicate with each other as human beings, as the communication Definitely. species that we are, that separates us from other animals on this planet, this ability to communicate with each other and to justify our de- decisions within a community with one another. And from the groups and, I guess, leaderships and that must have developed. And this is something that capitalism is definitely um, really... This is the ultimate thing that capitalism's ever exploited from humanity. I mean, we talk about the exploitation of labour, but it's the power of storytelling, which really holds the power. It's not a liberal ideology. It is the power of storytelling. It's, It's this thing that makes us common people believe in the history that they lay out for us and it's up to us to tell the truth and to tell a better story than them a more convincing one for other people to follow and this is you know Karl Marx definitely has its go with that and we're doing our go with that so yeah I mean the power of storytelling can't really be overstated and something we should actually concentrate on I think in the future Actually, that was half the notes I had was about this, about the story. You have to understand why people make stories, like a story of what a nation is. Uh, I think you've mentioned that in a previous episode, but it's just like you make it just so that they fantasize about being the ruling class or like whatever that is, that's them and it's not true, right? So what anyone who's telling you any story that doesn't involve uh, maximization of pleasure to like the most amount of people, then that story is a lie. That's what I think, because if, if you tell someone, yeah, if you tell someone, um, you know, you have to sacrifice for, for your nation, you have to, um, you know, eat less food or like stand on like these long lines for bread for your nation or for your God or for whatever, that they're not your friend. This, this whole story is a lie. It's meant to keep you in control because there's no such thing as, especially in capitalism, there's no such thing as we will suffer now so that tomorrow will be better no, every step we take is to be better. So if you accept the lower conditions now, you'll never, like, they'll just take you for granted. I mean, yeah, about being tough to accept the, the conditions is exceptionally tough. That's why I know that a few of my mates um, and a few people who I know, despite knowing me and probably being really interested in what I'm doing with this podcast, it is basically aimed at them, it's aimed at my community, it's aimed at the people in my city and people beyond that who, who want to, you know, obviously learn about Marxist-Leninism and, you know, basically our history, but to accept th- these realities, it can be traumatic because it can be really upsetting to really understand just how shit the world is and just how heavily exploited that we are, so that's why we have to support each other as comrades when we, we do look into these things and we do have to be friends and work with one each other. Like, I mean, it's extremely upsetting and it can be hard to listen to. So to any of those friends who know me, like, despite you know, what you may think of me as a person or despite of what you may think of what we're talking about here, it, it is the truth and thank you for listening. 
and it might be tough to really listen to it and to, to really accept it don't let it get you down keep listening to it you can always reach out and speak to me or us here and and talk about these issues further it's the whole point in it if you do like it share it with other people it's it's nothing to be ashamed of it's nothing to be embarrassed about here it's something that we're all going through together and the more that we go through it together the better the world's gonna be because i mean we're gonna we're gonna have each other's back instead of being absolutely fingered by the ruling class like it's no joke Okay, so that was some really interesting talking points. We really brought what what's already been discussed out quite a bit there. So I'm really excited to crack on here as we move on to social segregation as a more specific topic. So if you don't mind leading us into that, please, Zola. Yeah, so where we were uh, going on with this is that where white nationalists think about it. So, for example, they keep blaming things like multiculturalism as being a quote-unquote failure. And I think a lot of people in the ex-Muslim community agree with that as well. But the reasons are different. For example, there's a notion of uh, let them, whoever they are, deal with their own problems. Because if we interfere, it is racist. This is something that is shared as well by liberals. Like, there's this whole, there's an us and them, and we're not, we shouldn't, you know, step this fake boundaries that were created. And this is where, especially where the intergenerational divide becomes bigger, because people who think and, are, you know, they are British, but then they can't really talk against any stereotype that is created for them. So they, so this is why um, people like, Tommy Robinson, they like to wallow in like crimes that are committed by one group against the, another group, especially the quote unquote Muslim against white people. And there's not any other narrative that is promoted, any like the opposite happening or just, you know, two, two white people, two Muslims that, that they don't care about that at all because there's this whole we shouldn't deal with their problems, but oh, now they're causing us problems. There's this whole us and them. So, for example, it, I think it's pretty common, not just in Britain, but also in Europe, that uh, a neighbor would just call the police many times on uh, on an immigrant family for no reason, just say uh, they were loud or um, they were playing ball very loudly. And it's funny because we didn't have a ball to play with anyways. Like, we didn't used to play with a ball in the back garden, but... This happens all the time. They just call the police and say, uh, you know, noise or whatever it is they could. And then, um, so whenever, for example, and, um, my parents actually had something that they should have called the police for, they didn't because they, because of what they experienced, they didn't know that the police would have been on their side if they called the police at that time. It's this idea that... Um, you know, because they're different and they should be, then, then, you know, police force and like the social services should be on their side. Uh, it's another form, it's another depth of racism that isn't really discussed in media. That's why I just wanted to bring it up. And um, there is a doctor that appeared in uh, ITV. His name is uh, Shambag. He appeared on the news saying that he encountered a, a woman saying, that she wanted a white doctor and the thing is he didn't even report it immediately because he in his own words didn't know despite working for over 20 years in the nhs he didn't trust or know what the administration would have done would it protect him or would it defend the patient's claim oh, he just damn. left the room That's so and sad. 
yeah it's 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 interesting you don't stand up for yourself because you think you are different and like you were saying uh before about if you know if you fail to be rich then it's your own fault this also applies here there's this whole you need to be responsible for yourself there's this collective you that you have to be responsible for and you sacrifice your own benefit for the group something that is extremely held strongly by muslim communities ever since 9-11 because 9-11 changed um the western world in especially all the muslim communities were treated extremely differently before and after um they had to group up yep that's when they that's when they had to group up with nationalities that they wouldn't have talked with otherwise and in their own home countries they would have been racist towards people from those countries but now it's the whole uh there's an us you know it's a whole like we will gather against the common enemy narrative as if the common enemy is the white working class when it isn't but because we're pitted against each other yeah yeah interesting and and also again upsetting i just want to reiterate what you said there about was very stem and you mentioned Tommy Robertson. I don't want to utter his name too much on, on this show because I, I'm, I'm not about platforming evil, vindictive racists, but he does help cement these was first time. I think he's in jail now, but that was not after fomenting hate and racism. And who was he working with? Like Britain First or some, some group of gobshite fascists? It was some someone like that, and I mean, he was given a media space and a platform by bourgeois free press for a long enough time to have a substantial impact on this us versus them fascist mentality. So, um, despite him being in jail now, I mean, I'm sure he's just simply building up more followers in jail, and he's probably going to come out. Uh, like, and we're going to hear of him again, no doubt, which is really telling of the British state and what what it thinks of what's justice. A small little thing I found funny about that as well is like he was always on about like law and order, law and order, why don't they follow the law and everything. Uh, and then the second he breaks the law, all his followers are like, yeah, but not him, nah, let him out. Like, no, oh, it's fine, don't worry about it. Yeah, it's, it's ironic as well, like they use the they use the failings of, of the economy itself to say, yeah, the reason why you're not like the ruling class is because of them. And it's not because the ruling class will never give up its its status for you. It, yeah, it's ironic. Precisely. And to lead on to the next point, Ryan, you said these fascists used these, you know, migrants are breaking the law. And then that just ties into an observation that you made, Zola, saying that you've witnessed and had neighbours phone up the police saying that oh you're messing around with the fucking ball because you're a kid's playing outside even though you've never had the ball but to find any excuse to say oh these kids or these migrants are breaking the law and actually phone the police so that's the Tommy Robertson analysis where you brought that out against their group Ryan that's your personal experience of where you've seen that on a smaller scale and I can tell you now I've literally seen that in my life in like the, the last two years i've saw a neighbor giving shit to to their neighbors a few doors down like their parents because kids were playing like 
with the football in the street and I can't remember what it was because it was quite a bit away. I was walking to the shop but I saw this saying, oh, I tell your fucking kids with the ball and all that. And I'm like, they've turned around and said, what are you talking about? The kids that they're not bothering you. Go back in your house and that. And then I basically heard like this argument where this woman got called like a racist and all that by these parents and in all likelihood she was probably a racist doing the exact same that we've just mentioned where they just want to basically phone the state and, and really hassle these people who again are already going through fucking enough being in this country and this is the racism that we're talking about and some concrete examples that we all in Britain have have seen it, it happens it goes on and this is what we're talking about this is what we, we want to put an end to like literally immediately and as soon as possible and we have to talk about class analysis to do that like i'm sorry but we have to we have to read Marx. we have to read lenin we have to communicate with with communists and socialists because these that's the only way we're going to put an end to it. it's the only better option that we've got and again, I've, I've actually heard people talk and tell me to, to my face to, and, and again, Zola, I'm so sorry again to talk about these things. It, I can't literally imagine what it's like, but I've actually heard like people say, oh, they never had a white doctor. They only had this other doctor from like India or wherever who was highly skilled and intelligent, as we've already mentioned, but because I, I'm a racist like scumbag, like I'm gonna like be prejudiced against this other person, as if whoever you're telling this story to even really cares about what doctor you've got to be after all. Don't you want the best healthcare? Like what what planet are you living on? You know what I mean? Oh we we know it's the racist fucking capitalist and imperialist planet Earth. God damn it. Yeah, but um, what you said actually leads to my next point that I had on my notes. It's this is why being alien or different is detrimental to survival. And this is why people tend to avoid it instead of, you know, the whole uh, fake progressiveness that, you know, being different is good. It's actually what you just said now or what like how you're analyzing is it's literally how people think about why we need to avoid being different. Um for example, uh, they they even get to the point where they exhibit the strongest of you know fascist ideals like colorism and you know like stereotyping, not realizing that they themselves will be seen through the same lens, all for the purpose of fitting in. It's this is something that's all also transgenerational because even the first generation because they choose to immigrate, they choose to you know they choose to adopt values, so they do that as well. Um, a migrant has already crossed too many, you know, different box. If if there's like a checklist, they've already crossed too many of it, so they'd rather not anymore. They like to be more conservative, leaning in their behavior, in their lifestyle. Um, survival means they can't afford to participate in politics. That's why they lean on the right. That's why they like to pretend like whatever is the uh, conservative idea that we were sold as kids, like whatever it, is, it means to be British, that is what they choose to be. They become a cartoon character of, of what a British is meant to be, what a Britain is meant to be. And if we weren't sold only one image, then it would have been different. Um, yeah, then there's this, uh, for example, there's a podcast series on BBC. I think it's still up on the on their app. It's by someone called Saida Wasi, and she she has like this short podcast series on what it means to be a Muslim woman. It's 
an identity that doesn't really make sense because you can be a woman anyways like it's not something that you're being mm. if it makes sense uh, but it's just basically a definition that you know like right-wing definition like most of the episodes were i mean they're pretty good episodes not gonna lie but it's most of it is yes i have a job that is different than whatever was on te- on the telly but yeah we know that already you know um I did. I don't think anyone choose to be seen as a Muslim or singled out on it, right? Um, that's that's also that's something that really hurts me right now because I see the ex-Muslim community and it pains me to see how prominently right-wing they are, especially the most uh, the biggest figures we have in the ex-Muslim community. Uh, just because Muslims like hate. Uh, the ex-Muslims, they hate the minority within the minority just for being different, just for crossing too many boxes of being different. Despite us, we have the same experience. That doesn't mean that you should just go full-on uh, right-wing. Um, I think it's another way of pretending to fit in, of being like, of catering to complete fascists just to say, yeah, I'm a fascist too, that, that means you should accept me. It, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, for example, in the Netherlands... The first pretty famous figure of an of an ex-Muslim woman would be Ayan, and she played her cards. I mean, she, she so she got into the country in a in a pretty like questionable way, dodgy way, and then she joined a far right party and was campaigning against immigration, which uh, campaigned against the very same methods that she used. And when it when that was revealed, her own party turned against her, and they said they should revoke her citizenship because uh, she doesn't deserve to be there. When before there were displaying her as look at us we we, we're not racist we just don't like the muslims i think those people see it as like a defense mechanism right like if if they join those right-wing parties then they won't they'll look at them like oh this is one of the good ones you know i mean it's like a defense thing because it'll be like no no leave her alone like she's okay it's just the other ones you know what i mean it's like a a way to avoid criticism i guess yeah that was very, very interesting there. I mean, a point that I found particularly interesting that you made was to say that why people turn to the right and why they take part in these right-wing politics or why they subscribe to those ideas. And it's because of because of the positions they don't really have uh, and, you know, another alternative. And it's because they've got to take part in these right-wing, like, nationalist... Um, like like politics and these political organisations because they haven't got no op- option because, I mean, it's easier to just go around saying that you're racist and you want to uh, oppose immigrants or you want to impose all these, you know, s- uh, all these programmes which, which benefit the people rather than try and make us all, you know, millionaires because, of course, we're all just secret... because we're all temporary millionaires... Um, but this is fundamentally a reason why taking part in in electoral politics or you know politics of of, of any nature is or, or taking part in party politics is inherent inherently reactionary, and that's what we mean when we say 
these people are essentially being a component of fascism, of liberalism, of capitalism, and they're opposing their own class, which they're a part of. They're opposing politicians just by taking part in electoral politics. And this is certainly a position that we've held in Revolutionary Lumpen Radio a number of times, and we've talked about reactionaries who turn to politics because taking part in politics, whether it's left-wing or right-wing, is inherently against your own class interest. So regardless of who you are on an individual level or what ideals you might hold, by taking part in, in any kind of what you call official politics, whether it's a Labour Party or the Conservatives, you're inherently going against your own interest. There's no way you can participate without the place of your roots. There's no possible way. Yet you might make yourself a better position by using your skin colour or your racial or religious background to help you propel within politics, even if that may not be what you're consciously doing. There's still white people within that political structure who will use you to their advantage. And of course, it worked for Barack Obama in that sense that he was the first black president. But again, I mean, he bombing African countries with drones and a military industrial complex really benefited them with him there. He was a great component for capitalism and imperialism. So this is why, again, we, we call these people reactionaries. And it's a really interesting point that you was able to bring out it and how people who might not be necessarily white or, you know, nationalist already are taking part in these and some of the effects that that could have. So thanks for bringing that out. But yeah, I I can understand why people turn to it, of course, because they're like, it's said that once you take part in those politics, I mean, you can feel like you're on the in-group. But again, we have to reiterate that you're never going to be on the in-group. Yeah, so um, this is unfortunate for a lot of people living in Britain their whole life, but then they become exiled or deported or whatever you want to call it just for some documents. There's even a doctor in Liverpool who also, like, she was going to face deportations for this exact same reason, just a bunch of random documents, even though, you know, she lived there her whole life. And it's a trend that ex-Muslims face and as well not just you know the the right wing but also the islamic fundamentalists which are also right wing they exploit this british islamic fundamentalists especially so they use racism that comes from uh the ruling class or like the struggle from you know the white nationalists they control muslim the muslim community and they're like they'll threaten them with deportation you know you leave britain if you if you don't act like this specific way, if you don't act right wing, so it's it's a pressure from both sides to become more to the right, and it's really it really hurts that so many people in our generation are just going towards the right, and it doesn't make sense to me because they then they're voting against their own interests, and just because they don't have the right documents, and these documents are like obtained with a series of increasingly complex and difficult bureaucratic like visits. It's not. It's not something that makes that there is a righteous system anyways. Yeah, there's a few reasons for that. That's because historically the immigrants are accepted. They're accepted whenever capitalism needs poor labour, whenever they need to fill job markets, which 
aren't necessarily the best jobs. They're probably the the worst to take part in, like out of the whole, every single job you could have. But they're very welcoming to immigrants whenever they need new wage slaves. And then whenever they've got certain jobs or technology increases in machinery to you know, to really produce more capital on a more mechanicalized, uh, industrialized level, then they don't need as many workers. So that's when they'll close the borders. But then when they need more people working jobs, or again, when you need extremely intelligent academics with high skills, or whenever they come from universities who are professionals within certain industries, they'll open up the borders. Because as you've just said and gave a material example to, it's the nurses, it's the doctors, it's the highly educated skill workers who are mostly from India or from these other nations because us as British people all go to flipping comprehensive schools. I mean, you know what I'm saying? We all go to shitty comprehensive schools where, like public schools which have got shitty funding. We can't fill these job roles. We're, we're basically all, you know, mostly like done you know what i mean i'm sorry like i'll probably use a better word but we're all we all haven't reached our potential within education because we're the education systems are constantly fucking deprived from funding so we've all got to if we want to educate ourselves we have to go outside and we have to educate ourselves because the public school system is definitely not going to give us that education i mean it's not an accident right i mean these things are deliberately done right so like another way of putting that isn't such that you know like the people are dumb. It's that this is a function of a capitalist system, you know, like upping the bar for education perpetually, right? They institute all sorts of barriers and hurdles and jumps that you have to get through to even get an education. So, you know, they introduce tuition fees. So this automatically puts a barrier between who can get an education and who can't, right? If you're rich, you just go, you just pay it, no problem. If you're not, you take loans out with like a 6% interest fee, right, now you're automatically behind already. And so even if, so if you're not from, you know, those classes that benefit, they're putting you at a disadvantage perpetually, and you're having to work harder and harder and harder just to get to the same point that, you know, anyone else is at. Yeah, that's definitely something middle class people can do. They might be able to achieve these loans to put you in, in private schools, but... For working class people, no, that's not really a, a reality unless you're making a lot of money in crime. <laughs> like, there's no other way. But, yeah, absolutely right. But, yeah, I definitely second that, what Ryan said, and also what you said about... Uh, it's, it's definitely something that is de- deliberate. I think it's because they, like... It's like what you said in the feudal government system before. You know, they keep some people close to the ruling class, just kind of let them tell them that they enjoy uh, the same you know the, the same facilities when they don't and then they would think that they already have everything it's that incentive because if they did actually educate uh, britons as easy as they edu- as as easy as they got everyone else who got educated for uh, for less they would exploit them less i think it's purely from a, a capital perspective there's more exploitation when you bring in someone whose backs is to the wall, basically. That's why uh, segregation is very dangerous, and it's also very advantageous to the to the right wing, to the ruling class, both of them together. For example, 
the Islamic far right even even took this whole backs to the wall thing to recruit people for their own agenda. I'm talking about the Western Islamic fundamentalists because I can't I can't really speak for other cultures. Um, so for example, even I think I think a member of Parliament, his name is uh, Khalid Mahmoud, and he mentioned in 2014 that there were more Britons fighting in ISIS than against it. And I mean people that carry the British passport. They, there's more people fighting there than any other nationality as well, like British, French, and German. So ISIS itself isn't even something that is created by a different culture. I think it's pretty, it's, it's pretty fundamentally right-wing, and there's nothing about it other than it being uh, another spawn of, of, the, uh, of fascism just it just has a different flavor uh like just like how ice creams have flavors he said that there are uh, in 2015 even people that i personally knew wanted to join and they even uh, took a gap year and went to syria just to join and they are british as well and and like there's i think 1500 britons there it's just it's an idea of yeah because your backs are to the wall the only way you'll go is to the right and i i don't see anything I mean, I don't know, I don't see anything in the world that doesn't belong to, you know, fascist or, or extremist right-wing ideology. It's definitely the majority, right, like the ruling ideology, that's what we sort of went over in cultural hegemony, right? Like, the economic base, which is a capitalist base, directly informs the superstructure, right, ideology, which is everything in society that's not directly material, right, you're talking about, like, law morality, music, right, everything like that, stories, all those stories, which is what you're talking about, which is when we tie back to the, the story thing, so, yeah, they are, ultimately, because we live in a capitalist system, and that system perpetuates itself through stories, and it's never going to tell stories that are detrimental to capitalism, it's always going to tell stories that, you know, perpetuate itself, and um, that's how you end up with a dominant ideology like that which is you know disastrous for even the people telling the stories it's disastrous for them too really interesting points there just to go back on what you said about not using words like islamophobia even though we did kind of discuss this episode previously talking about you know whether that should be some of the topics that we're going to go over when we decided to do this I can see why you didn't want to use words like Islamophobia for, for the episode and within it. Um, and that's because when we're telling these stories, we do have to speak to the masses in as best possible understandable terms that we can, while also speaking as Marxists and giving a class analysis. So we have to use words interchangeably and we have to kind of, you know, speak in the easiest terms as possible while also going into kind of complex situations which are inherently complex because this means that when people do have their backs against the wall, that's why they're going to turn to the right, okay, because it's the easiest thing to go to. It's, its ideology is extremely simple. You're poor, you're oppressed, and the reason is because of this other outside group. And it's really, I mean, we can't stop going back to it because this is as simple as it is and also there's, there's the fact that the left have also seen as you know crazy communists who live in an idealist world and you know communism's failed a billion times and 
you know, communism's killed over a hundred bajillion people. So don't ever think about turning to the left because you're just, you live on a dream world, basically. So again, just to reiterate, that's why the people turn to the right, in, in my opinion. And what that does to also conceptualize what you said, I didn't actually know, I didn't know that about ISIS. There's so many people went over to to Syria to help ISIS cause basically brutal genocide and slavery and oppression and they'd done some grim stuff, you know what I'm saying? But it really wouldn't surprise me that so many people from Britain or the West would go over there because who was it that goes over into Syrian or Iraqi towns and slaughters innocents and puts them against the wall and cuts the heads off and rapes them? It's the British Army. It's the U.S. Army. It's the bourgeois. It's the bourgeois military. They did that long before ISIS. So I'm not surprised that they do it when when those forces, for the most part, come out of Iraq or come out of Afghanistan or Syria, wherever ISIS were. Yeah, it's interesting that they're gonna go back and do it again, but instead of with the British Army, they'll do it with ISIS. This just reminds me of a story I read. About it wasn't even that long ago, right? It was about like Pentagon trained militia um, got into a firefight with CIA trained militia. So it's like these people are just arming, training and arming different groups of people, and they're so unorganized they don't even cooperate with each other to know. So these are you know like two groups that were fighting each other, but they were both being trained by the United States government, right? So yeah. I mean, they do, they do, they train and they arm people and they send them over for yeah, sure. Yeah, we, we talked about this for quite a bit in Tried Democracy versus Proletarian Dictatorship. Everybody needs to check that out and actually listen to some theory. It's very interesting. But this is, again, to, to keep those regions, not just for profit, but it's also to keep those regions in a state of medievalism, you know what I'm saying, and literally feudalistic, bar- you know, not to insult anybody, but they do the best to keep those nations in a barbaric society, and this helps with the stories telling, saying, oh, look, they haven't even got fucking electricity. Yeah, it's not, it's because they've hit the all the electrical plants with cruise missiles, and they've intentionally keep them without water, and again, this is to make them come over, whether legally or illegally, and workers undocumented labor or documented labor you know it's it, it's a common tactic and they're going to continually keep the middle east in as primitive society as they possibly can at least economically or economically all while the while the people of those lands are suffering diaspora in their own lands and nation as well as coming under attack from fascist and imperialist ideology again we have to go over these terms with theory and bring it out into context because however you look at it we always go back to to marxist theory and we can't just paint the world in exactly how it is so it's great that you could bring out very material examples and i think that we've done a good job at that so far that was all really interesting there I actually finished everything. I just want to say thank you for this analysis. It was pretty good. Honestly, I just want to, I just want people to like go back and listen to what you said again. You kind of summed up everything quite perfectly because I just brought examples, but you kind of linked it together. That's exactly what's going on. I think this is an excellent analysis that you just put in and 
and people need to hear this like people need to understand that it's not like they're foreign countries so they have issues this is all in context this is all part of a plan yeah most definitely awesome thank you very much for that some kind words um i've got to thank both of you and we we've we done this together and as well as the heroic sacrifices of proletarians and revolutionaries before us who were constantly fighting for a better world and um to not move through pages of history over and over again like actual craziness you, you know what i'm saying <laughs> Even even Albert Einstein was a socialist, so you, you know what I mean. It, it this this just makes perfect sense, um, and yet everybody needs to take it on board, and also share it because it's important. It's no good if we're just speaking to to ourselves. Hopefully, other people are really gonna see the power in the truth and really wanna really share it and, and help people understand this past consciousness. Lost in this city of fog, rarely seen by the sun Just cause you're both beneath it doesn't mean that you're none Never captains of the ship, they mistook us for some passengers Now we're stuck here singing soul music from diaspora Your host can't relate to your sense of dislocation Type of pain that cannot be contained in a dissertation The reason that the terrified are setting fires The reason they couldn't jeopardize Zephaniah Considered as a compliment if the beauty is fetishized Your history is power, that's the reason some are petrified Colonial mimic got crying behind a mask or a man with amnesia trying to find his past Anthony Walker never had a weapon but they still got him Stephen Lawrence never had a weapon but they still got him Mark Duggan never had a weapon but they still shot him they call him first world diaspora problems don't you wonder what became of the children of diaspora those that innovated in their ways and their vernacular those who saw their traces in the faces of the massacred I wonder what became of them tell me what became of them so Hadid was a child of diaspora so fear not, fear not Edward Said was a child of diaspora So fear not, fear not Never bow to the queen Passage either sink or you swim Bleach the pigment of skin and prayers privilege trickling in 
are we missing a link? Diaspora is the reason MJ did to his nose what they did to the Sphinx. And why Marley made the most classic of art. The reason Gabby Douglas didn't put a hand on her heart. The reason Malcolm Little changed his name to X. The reason the president's melanin remains a threat. Ahmed made a clock, they arrested him, mangled his name. But the root of the word is to thank and to praise. Racism manifests in many cancerous ways. We must rally for change in these most tragic of days. Cause Emmett Till never had a weapon, but they still got him. Tommy Rice never had a weapon, but they still shot him. Orton Sterling never had a weapon, but they still shot him. They call him first world diaspora problems. So you wonder what became of the children of diaspora? Those that innovated in their ways and their vernacular. Those who saw their traces in the faces of the massacred. I wonder what became of them. Tell me what became of them. Lena Simone was a child of diaspora. So fear not, fear not. Franz Fanon was a child of diaspora, so fear not, fear not. There's no allegiance to the flag, no. There's no allegiance to the flag, no. There's no allegiance to the flag, no, 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 no. There's no allegiance to the flag, no. There's no allegiance to the flag, no. There's no allegiance to the flag, no, 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 no. Never bow to the queen. Never bow to the queen, no, no.